You may be seated. And please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 17. Last week we began studying this final major section in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, um, the section about spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God. Uh, last week we looked at verses 10, 11, and 12, which taught us about our enemy, the devil, and about the, the battle in which all followers of Jesus are engaged, a, a battle that's real, that's personal, that's spiritual, that's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in light of this, this real, personal, spiritual battle, the Apostle Paul instructs us in Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11, to finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, to be strong in the strength of the Lord's might, not in our own strength, not in our own resources, not in us trying really hard to, to muster up the courage and the, the wisdom and the ability to stand against the evil one in and of ourselves, but in the, hit the strength of his might, and as verse 11 says, to put on the whole armor of God, you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Well, in our text today, verses 13 to 17, Paul's going to lay out uh, the whole armor of God for us. And we're going to see there's six different pieces of this armor of God listed in the passage. We're going to look briefly at all six. But before we get into the text and hear about these, the pieces of the whole armor of God, you know, please understand that this, this passage, I mean, as you know, it's not about literal you know, pieces of articles of clothing. That Paul's clearly using clothing as a, as a metaphor to teach us and encourage us about several things. And, he, and he's going to teach us and encourage us about these things over and over and over again. About the truth of about who God is, about his character and his attributes. About the, the truth of the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection about our union with Christ through grace, by grace through faith, and the truth about who we are now, regardless of who we are now in Christ, regardless of how we feel, regardless of our experience, but who we are now in Christ. So you put another way, you might find it helpful to think of the whole armor of God, each aspect of this armor of God, pointing us to and reminding us of really the same things over and over and over again. That is reminding us of the truth about who God is, the truth about the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us, and the truth about who we are now in Christ. And in many ways, these are the same things that Paul's been writing about for six chapters in his letter to the Ephesians. Listen to how Pastor Sinclair Ferguson puts it. The letter to the Ephesians is an extended exposition of what it means to be in Christ. So there's good reason to think that Paul's description of the armor of God is simply an extended exposition of what it means to be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. So with that said, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 6, verse 13. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at this passage under two headings. And I'll, the first heading is short. The second heading is pretty massive. Okay, so the first heading is the purpose of the whole armor of God. And the second heading is the six pieces of armor. So we're going to look at each, all six of them. So it's two headings. I guess technically it's a seven-point sermon, but it's two headings. Okay, so first, the purpose of the whole armor of God. Look, look at verse 13 in the beginning of verse 14. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. See, this armor, it's, it's the armor of God. It comes from God. It's of God. It's, it's armor that's forged and furnished by God. It's, it's God's armor. We're going to talk about that more later in the sermon, but it's God's armor. Therefore, we can trust it completely. Notice, it's the armor of God, and God gives it to us. Or put another way, only the armor supplied to us by God will enable us to stand against the never-ending schemes of the devil. You know, last week I, I mentioned William Gurnell's uh, classic 17th century work titled The Christian in Complete Armor. I know that many of you went out and bought it right away. You know, it only has 261 chapters and 1,200 pages, and so I know you got right into it. Um, but in, in that book, he says this, In heaven we shall appear not in armor, but in robes of glory. But here, they, or the whole armor of God, are to be worn night and day. We must walk, work, and sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Jesus Christ. But look again at verse 13, the beginning of verse 14. Notice how over and over again, Paul says to stand. In fact, even last week in verse 11, Paul said stand against the schemes of the devil. And then here we see three more times in verse 13 and 14, you may be able to withstand, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore. See, the whole armor of God is intended to enable us to stand. Right? Not The purpose of the armor of God is not so that we can go out on the attack, and so that we can take new ground, and so that we can go go out and find uh, the devil and wage war against him and, and cast out demons and, and destroy demonic attachments and so, so forth. Rather, it's the armor of God is intended to enable us to stand, to stand firm against the, the schemes and the attacks of the devil. I'll tell you, friends, it's, it's no small thing to stand firm. I mean, looking out in this sanctuary, I see there are people who have uh, less hair than I do, and they have you know, whiter hair than I do. And I, so I know that, that, that you know as well as I do many people who have been wounded in the spiritual fight and or who, who haven't stood firm, who have fallen away. See, it's no small thing to stand firm. In fact, standing firm is a glorious thing. It's what Paul's calling us to do. Right? This battle, it's real, it's personal, it's spiritual. It's going to last our entire lives on this earth. So we need the whole armor which God provides to remain standing, most especially in the evil day. 
which Paul says in verse 13, in the evil day. Now, by that phrase, in the evil day, he could be thinking of some cataclysmic time before the return of Christ, or he could be thinking of the evil day as, as in a time when Christ and his word and his church are especially assailed on every side, every front. Or the evil day could be any time, any ordinary mundane time in our everyday lives whenever we face special pressure or attack from Satan and his minions. And there are times of, of more intense special pressure and attack. Puritan John Owen puts it this way, describing this times of special pressure and spiritual attack. During those times, temptations will have a season wherein their solicitations will be more urgent, their reasonings more plausible, pretenses more glorious, hopes of recovery more appealing, opportunities more broad and open, the doers of evil made more beautiful than ever they have been. To put simply, perhaps the evil day is any time that you are particularly vulnerable to temptation. I mean, it can be going, it could be when you're going through a very, very difficult time. Maybe a time of poor health, career struggles, relationship difficulties. Anything, any, anything and everything that could cause you to be particularly discouraged, vulnerable, looking for some release, some escape. Or it could be just the opposite. It could be um, in, in a season of life after some great success. Maybe after some hard-fought spiritual victory. Maybe coming, coming off of a mission trip. Maybe you know, coming off of some time of, of, of great service for the Lord to the church. Maybe even coming off of a, a week where you spent every morning that week pouring yourself out at Vacation Bible School. When your guard is down. And when you least expect an attack. You see, friends, the battle is real, it's personal, it's spiritual, and it will last our entire lives on this earth. And so how can we be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? Well, Paul's been telling us for several verses now, we need the whole armor which God provides to remain standing, most especially in the evil day. And there are six pieces of armor, so we're going to look at each one of them in turn. First, you see the belt of truth in verse 14. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, stands the reason that Paul, Paul knew about uh, a, a Roman soldier's suit of armor. He had seen them. He's a prisoner in Rome. No doubt the Ephesians knew what Roman soldiers looked like. And so he begins with the belt of truth. And every Roman soldier had a belt around his waist to secure his clothing, to keep the, the, the loose garments in place and not flapping around in, in, in the air as he, as he engaged in battle. Right? The belt enabled a soldier to be prepared for action, to fight unencumbered. And yet, because it's just a belt, a belt could be overlooked, easily overlooked. But if you don't have a belt, you need a belt, you know a belt's pretty important pretty foundational, pretty foundational to the suit of armor. Like with most of these pieces of the whole armor of God, there, there is some debate about you know, exactly what Paul has in mind by the belt of truth. Now, some people think, well, he's referring to foundational truth. You know, the belt's foundational, foundational truth, foundational doctrinal truth, the authority of the word of God. 
Others think that because this is uh, the belt of truth that, that would gird his loins, as other uh, translations put it, that, that Paul's talking about some, some inner, inner truth, personal integrity, faithfulness, sincerity of heart, you know, being true and genuine in one's motives, in one's life. When I think about those two options, which seem to be the dominating options, Listen, I think Paul has both in mind. Doctrinal truth found in God's word and living lives of faithfulness in response to those doctrinal truths. You know, another quote from William Gurnell. You know, again, you know, he writes, you write a big book like that, you're going to have multiple quotes. And so he says, some by truth, by the belt of truth, mean a truth of doctrine. Others will have it truth of heart, sincerity. They, I think, best that comprise both. One will not do without the other. The easy is, why not both? They go together. They go together. Pastor Ian Hamilton says, Christian sincerity of heart is informed and shaped by the truth and authority of God's written word. The armor of God will not hang upon lives where there is an absence of heart integrity. We must resolve to be men and women who deliberately and self-consciously take up God's truth and bind it around our lives. There will be times when you will be tempted to trim the truth, to hide the truth, to manipulate the truth, to place yourself in a better light, or to save you from the cost of being a faithful disciple of Christ. The devil will use his schemes to try to persuade you that a little compromise is neither here nor there. That's one of his schemes, one of his tricks and traps and snares. That a little trimming, a little hiding, a little manipulating, a little compromise, it's not a big deal. See, brothers and sisters, if we're going to stand firm in the evil day, we must not fall into the trap of trimming the truth, hiding it, manipulating it. And here's the thing, the good news of the gospel is that if we're guilty of this, there's grace for us. There's grace for you, there's grace for me. Confess your sin. Repent of it. Turn away from it. Trust and rest in the grace that Christ has purchased for you, for us, in his life, death, and resurrection, and begin to walk in newness of life and faithfulness. But but truth is foundational to the Christian life. The late pastor James Montgomery Boyce said, without truth, without the doctrines, without the knowledge of who God is, who we are, and what we have become in Christ, and what we have been called to do, I mean, the sorts of things that Paul's been writing about all throughout Ephesians. Without this, we really do not know what kind of activity in which to engage, and we will be vulnerable to Satan's onslaughts and wiles. See, I think the, the image of buckling the belt of truth is meant to convey a, a willingness to apply the whole of God's word to the whole of one's life, to apply the whole of the counsel of God's word to, to the whole of your life, right? No, no area of your life unsubmitted to God's word. No area of your life where you decide, you know what, I'm going to be faithful in all of these areas, but this one, this one here, I'm going to kind of segment away, sector away, I'm going to do what I want to do here and not submit it to God's word. Put another way, your, your, your private life matches your public life, your public confession, 
I mean, think about what Paul's been teaching in Ephesians 5 and 6 about, about marriage and about parenting and about living the spirit-filled life, the spirit-filled, maturing Christian life. And there ought to be, there ought to be a, a correlation between the truth that we profess and the lives that we're living, right? I mean, there's, there's a disconnect, right? If a, husband's, if a husband's able, with amazing precision, to, to identify theological error in, in a hymn or a song that we sing, and yet he's harsh and unloving with his bride. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect in the, wife, in, in the life of a wife who is so eager to serve and volunteer in any way, in every way she can here at the church, and yet she refuses to respect and to encourage her husband. There's a disconnect. There's a disconnect between a son or daughter who says, I desperately want to see my parents come to know Christ, but I refuse to, to honor and to obey them. See, Paul says, buckle the belt of truth around your waist. Commit to applying the whole of God's word to the whole of your life. And again, see, there's grace. There's grace for you. There's grace for me. Confess where you fall short. Confess where you fail. Repent. Trust that there's grace for you. And then walk in newness of life. Take back up the whole armor of God. Next, we see the breastplate of righteousness. Look at verse 14. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Right, Roman soldiers often wore bronze breastplates to protect their vital organs. It makes sense. I mean, to go into battle with your most vulnerable area exposed to the enemy would be foolish. Therefore, the, the breastplate of, of righteousness is meant to be viewed as critical, crucial for the Christian. But the question is, when you're thinking about the breastplate of righteousness is, whose righteousness is Paul talking about? Is this breastplate of righteousness our righteousness? Us working really hard to be as good as we can be? Having our good outweigh our bad? Or is he talking about Christ's righteousness, which is imputed to us by grace through faith? It must be Christ's righteousness. Now, no doubt, Christ's righteousness does impact us. And, we, and we, once, once we are saved, once we, we know Christ and we're born again and we're given new hearts and the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us, then the process of sanctification begins to happen and we, we are made more holy. We are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. But friends, I believe that this breastplate of righteousness is talking about Christ's righteousness. Think about what Paul asks at the end of Romans 8, in verse 30, Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right, God's elect, those whom God has chosen to set his saving love and affection on. Those whom God loves and saves through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. The question is, who will bring any charge against God's elect. Who's going to bring any charge? Who could possibly bring any charge that would stick? Any accusation that would possibly separate them from their God, separate them from God's love for them? And the answer that Paul gives is no one. It's God who justifies. 
So why is that the answer? It's God who justifies because God is the judge of the one and only court that matters, and it's God who justifies us. That there's no other higher court for our great enemy, Satan, to, to appeal to. There's no way for him to work around the, the finished work of Christ. It's God who justifies us. Right? And being justified is, is it's not less than being forgiven, but it's so much more. It's so much more. See, being justified is so much more than merely being forgiven, acquitted, having our record expunged, as wonderful as all that is. But being justified is a declaration that we who are sinners are now made righteous in God's sight because Jesus both paid our sin debt for us in full and he credits us with his perfectly sinless life. In fact, the imagery the Bible gives us is that on the one hand, we're washed clean in Jesus' shed blood for us on the cross. And on the other hand, we are clothed in his robes of righteousness. Or to use the language from Ephesians 6, we are equipped with Christ's breastplate of righteousness. And one of the great images of this is found in the Old Testament book of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 3, he has a vision. We read about it in verses 1 to one and two, he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Then in verse three, now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. So Joshua the high priest's filthy garments represent his sin. And Satan is accusing him of being unfit for service because of his sin. Now, Joshua, the high priest, he was a sinner. He wasn't perfect. He's a sinner, just like you, just like me. But then we read in verses 4 and 5, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. See, But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, Remove the filthy garments. He doesn't just say, I've taken your iniquity away from you, as wonderful as that would be. But he goes on and says, I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. So why can no one, not even Satan, the great accuser, bring any charge against you, dear Christian? It's because in Christ, your filthy garments have been removed. Your sin has been washed away. And you're now clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? No one. No one can get around the finished work of Christ. No attack of Satan can pierce the impenetrable breastplate of Christ's righteousness. As the hymn goes, When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul was counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Pastor Sinclair Ferguson says, this is wonderfully true. But we must even be bolder. God now not only looks on Christ and pardon me, pardons me, he looks at me in Christ. Not separated from Christ, but united to him. Possessing all that is in him. And he says to Satan, this child of mine you are accusing is united to my son. He, she is as righteous in my sight as my incarnate son himself. Accuse them no more. 
It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, that's God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. See, wearing the breastplate of Christ's righteousness means that whenever Satan brings his attacks and his tricks and his snares and his schemes and he, he whispers in your ear the, the long laundry list of all your sins, all your failures, you can hear that and then you can say back to him, I don't deny that any of that's true. But I'm trusting in Christ and his righteousness. Not in my own, in his and I'm wearing the impenetrable breastplate of Christ's righteousness. See, friends, we, if we're going to withstand the, the schemes of the devil in the evil day, we've got to believe this. We've got to remind ourselves of this. Day after day after day. Again, Sinclair Ferguson says, All that was mine, sin and shame and guilt and pollution, has become Christ's. Now all that is his in death, resurrection, and ascension has become mine. Therefore, wearing the breastplate of righteousness means knowing this, I can never be more justified than I was the first moment I trusted Christ. And I can never be any less justified than Jesus. Nor can I be one whit less justified than the greatest believer who has ever lived. I hope you believe that, dear friends, because it's true. Then we see the gospel shoes or the gospel boots in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You know, so Roman soldiers, like most soldiers, they wore shoes, they wore boots, which provided a better grip for, and for stable footing during the battle. And looking at verse 15, that word translated readiness could also be translated as preparation or foundation. So it seems to me that Paul means these gospel shoes, these gospel boots provide secure and sure footing for the Christian to stand against the schemes and the lies of the devil. That wearing these shoes makes us ready to engage in the spiritual battle. This peace, this gospel peace. Think about what we read in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, what it says about the peace that we now have with God through Christ and what it says about standing. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So you see this, there's this connection between this gospel peace and being able to stand, stand firm. And notice, it's, it's something that we can stand on. That this peace is, is a fact. It's a fact. It's not merely a feeling. It's not dependent upon how we feel. That our peace with God is an objective reality. It, it, it's, it's a change in status. That because of our sin, we were God's enemies. We made God our enemy through our sin and our rebellion against his word. But through Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, we're now at peace with God. God is at peace with us. And his word tells us that nothing, no nothing, and no one can disrupt or disturb this peace that we have with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the shield of faith in verse 16. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. The shield of faith. Now, this shield, is, it's not the frisbee-sized shield that you might see a gladiator you know, hold in the movies as he goes in to, to fight or whatever. No, this is more like, not like a frisbee, this is like a door. This is a shield that's like four foot high, two and a half, three feet wide, often covered in leather. And because it's covered in leather, it could be soaked in water. So that when the barrage of arrows come, even flaming arrows, the soldier can hold up the shield. And not only are the arrows blocked, but they're also extinguished because of the shield. And notice Paul says, take up the shield of faith. The shield of faith. I want you to be honest there in the, in the quietness of your own mind and heart. Whenever I say, take up the shield of faith, I wonder how many of us immediately begin to think about and to evaluate and analyze our own faith. I wonder how many of us begin to wonder, okay, I wonder if my, if my faith is, is good enough. Do I have enough faith? Is my faith strong enough? Is it of high enough quality? See, the call is to take up the shield of faith, but friends, it's not the quality or the strength or the amount of your faith that matters. It's always the object of your faith. As you've heard me say before, even the Christian with the weakest faith in Christ still gets the same strong Christ. You see, it's, it's not our faith. It's not our faith that saves us. The Savior saves us. Christ saves us. That we're justified and saved by Christ, who's received by faith. And, it's, and it is the shield of faith which will protect us from all the flaming darts, all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So, so what are these flaming arrows? I can think of some. I, I think of some, in general terms, I think it's the, the sudden and often unexpected temptations and trials, accusations, lies, snares, schemes of the devil. I mean, the devil uses temptations, but he also uses very difficult trials that we never saw coming to make us question and doubt God's goodness, to make us question and doubt God's faithfulness. Right, so what does it mean to take up the shield of faith? Well, it means to hold up and to believe and trust and rest in the truth about who God is, about what the Bible says who God is, his attributes, his, his character. The Bible says a lot about who God is, and one of the best places to go to get a, a simple summary of, of what the Bible says about who God is, is our shorter catechism. Shorter catechism, question four, asks, what is God? God is a spirit infinite, eternal, unchangeable. And then those three words, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, apply to everything that comes next. He's infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, but in his goodness. Your God is always infinitely, unchangeably, eternally good. So whenever those trials come, those ones that you never saw coming, Remind yourself of this truth. This is who God really is. Remind yourself of his character. Remind yourself of his promises. Promises like Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Remind yourself of, of his, his acts, of his saving works that we find throughout the history of redemption. Remember and remind yourself of and recount God's faithfulness to his people throughout the scriptures. His faithfulness to Noah and Abraham and Moses, the people of Israel, and David, the apostles. Now at this point, we're, we're, we're halfway through this. And so, I mean, do you see how though the whole armor of God is connected? Right? There's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, shield of faith, all based upon the truth of God's word and Christ's work of salvation on our behalf. So think about that. They all keep pointing to the same thing. John Newton in one of his hymns says, bow down beneath a load of sin by Satan sorely pressed. By war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Be thou my shield and hiding place. That sheltered near thy side, I may my fierce accuser face and tell him thou hast died. Standing strong in the strength of the Lord, in the strength of his might. Then we see the helmet of salvation in verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. See, Paul says if we're going to stand firm in the evil day, then we need to take the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation that is there to protect our heads and our minds. Our minds, as Romans 12 tells us, that are to be renewed as we're transformed. More and more into the image of Christ. As we take every thought captive to obey Christ. The, the helmet of salvation that, that piece of armor reminding us that we, that we can and we should have complete and utter confidence that whatever comes our way in this life, our salvation is secure. That God will save us in the end. That he'll bring all of his people all the way home. See, Paul talks about the, the helmet of salvation or the helmet of the hope of salvation in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 8 to 10. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love. So he's talking about armor again. And for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Not, we, I hope that we're saved, but a sure and certain hope of salvation. That's guaranteed. That Christ has already paid for. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. So the helmet of the hope of salvation, or knowing beyond a shadow of doubt that God will bring all of his people all of the way home, knowing that enables us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And then lastly, there's the sword of the Spirit, we see in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So this final piece of armor, which is the only offensive weapon to enable us to stand against the schemes of the devil. And we know from Hebrews 4, verse 12, that the, the, the Word of God has been referred to as a sword in other places. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And it's the sword of the Spirit, right? Because the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit as men were carried along by the Spirit as they wrote. So to wield the sword of the Word of God is to fight with the Spirit's power. Or as Sinclair Ferguson put it, the whole armor of God is the whole Bible applied to the whole Christian. And I would add, in the Spirit's power. And perhaps the clearest example of this is when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. 
in Luke 4, Matthew 4. He's tempted, and each time he's tempted, he responds back with the word of God, with the sword of the Spirit. We see in Matthew 4, 4, But Christ answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now think about this. If we're going to to use the the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, it's no secret what we have to do to be prepared to to wield the sword, right? We've got to know what the Bible says. All right, so the good news is, it's that simple. We've got to know what the Bible says. The bad news is, there's no shortcut to knowing what the Bible says. We got to read the Bible. We got to study and discuss the Bible, seek to understand it. We got to be committed to hearing it faithfully taught and preached. You know, we, we need to memorize it. We need to hide it in our hearts because we have no idea when the devil is going to spring an attack, whenever the fiery arrows are going to come, whenever we need the sword of the Spirit. But friends, this armor can be trusted. It can be trusted completely. It's the armor of God. It's the armor of God. And I told you at the beginning I would come back to this. You see, I mean, Paul, Paul knew what a Roman soldier looked like. No doubt the Ephesians did too. But Paul, Paul is not writing this down in, in Ephesians 6 because he's looking at a fully armed Roman soldier guarding him in house arrest. He's writing this down because it comes from the Bible. It comes from the Old Testament. It comes from Isaiah. Isaiah 11 and 52 and 59. See, it's God's own armor. Put another way, Christ has used this armor himself. And you can trust Christ and you can trust his armor. So listen to what the prophet Isaiah said about the Savior who was to come. And listen for the language of armor, beginning in Isaiah 11, verses 4 and 5. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Then Isaiah 59, verses 16 and 17, he saw there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. See, this, the, the armor of God, it comes, it comes from the book of Isaiah. Author and professor David Pallison said, each of the pieces of armor is rooted in the Old Testament, mainly Isaiah. Note that the Messiah girds his loins with the truth by fearing God and walking in power and wisdom of the Spirit. The Lord God puts on the breastplate of righteousness to deliver his people from bondage to sin. The Lord himself comes, his feet shod, bearing good news of peace to those captivated in sin and judgment. In the one piece of weaponry not rooted in Isaiah, the Lord himself is the shield behind which faith takes refuge from enemies. The Lord wears the helmet of salvation as he brings deliverance from the power of sin and gives his spirit and word. The sword of the spirit is God's word and proceeds from the mouth of the Messiah, the servant who will deliver the nations from the power of darkness. You see, these Isaiah passages find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Christ who's won the battle. 
Christ who has decisively defeated Satan on the cross, who's risen from the grave, who's ascended to God's right hand in heaven, and the armor and the sword in the Isaiah passages are the Lord's. And we see in Ephesians 6 that he gifts them to us, his people, so that we may be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So perhaps you're thinking, well, but Richard, I, I hear you. I, I understand this battle is real, it's personal, it's spiritual, but I've, I've had some losses. I, I know that. You don't have to tell me that. I don't have to tell you that. We, we've all, we all lose battles. The point here is we need to not forget that Christ has won the war. So we are to confess our sin, repent of it, turn away from it. Trust and rest in God's grace purchased for us by Christ. And keep taking back up again the whole armor of God. So you're not saved because you're sinless. You're saved because Christ lived and bled and died and rose from the grave for you. And he's given you his armor. And he will keep you. And he will bring you all the way home. See, did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be, Christ Jesus, it is he. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. And he's won the battle. And while we await Christ's return to bring about the final consummation of his ultimate victory over Satan, we take up the whole armor of God in his strength to stand firm in the evil day against the attacks and schemes of the devil. And that's the reason that we keep returning to this table over and over and over again to feast in faith on Christ, the Savior who came and who now sits at God the Father's right hand and who's coming again. And that Christ nourishes us, strengthens us, and encourages our faith for the battle. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these reminders of who you are the nature of our salvation in Christ, who we are now in Christ. Lord, as we prepare our hearts to come to this table, hear our prayers lifted up to you in silence, lifted up to you, our listening Lord.